She's the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York. Follow her voice is straight dog and nice. She's the pushy broad from the Bronx, oh yeah. Don't be surprised if you wanna listen twice. Make decisions, find the right choice. Know yourself better, find your own voice. It's okay if you need help today, cause everybody needs a little push. From the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York. Welcome, Transformation Talk Radio listeners. My name is Ellen Stewart, and I am the pushy broad from the Bronx. Welcome to my show, Recovery Recharged, with my illustrious co-host, Dr. Pat. How you doing, Doc? I'm really excited about this show because whenever there are stories about people that rise up, uh, whenever there are stories about surrender, whenever there are stories about graciously recovering or not so graciously recovering, I get so excited about it. And, you know, Ellen, what you're doing today and, and who we're speaking with today is so needed today. It, it's it's hard to even find the words anymore to say how much we need the message from our very featured guest today. Absolutely. And it, the, the compassion and the, and the uh, fortitude that this best-selling New York Times author displays is absolutely unparalleled. We have a very special guest today, New York Times best-selling author Judy Mandel. She talks about her new memoir, White Flag, which is on Amazon, available to you, in which she seeks to understand the nature of addiction while she struggles to save her beloved niece to fulfill the deathbed promise that she made to her sister. And it is just that compelling. I could not put it down. There are so many questions and so many things we're going to talk about uh, to, Ju to Judy today. I just want to give you a little bit of a background into her bio. She is a former reporter and a reporter and a marketing executive. After the death of her parents, she knew that it was time to write the story of her family's emotional and and physical survival and it tells of a devastating plane crash that killed an older sister and left a remaining sister critically burned and close to death her first new york times bestseller was replacement child it is that story and now she comes across with her second book, her second memoir called White Flag. It's related to her first book, and she's going to tell us how, as she becomes aware of the tentacles of transgenerational trauma stemming from the family tragedy. So we want, we have so much to talk about today and so much to get to with this powerful, powerful book. Welcome to Transformation Talk Radio and my show, Recovery Recharged, Judy Mandel. How how are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me, Ellen. It's nice to see you. And Pat, it's nice to see you too. It's great to thank have you. you. Yeah, thank thanks. you so much. Let's start by just telling our listeners a little bit about your first book, Replacement Child, because it directly relates to White Flag. So can you give us a background? Yeah, sure. Um, it's really the story of um, my family's survival, as you were saying. And it's about a plane crash in 1952 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And that plane uh, took the top off of the apartment building they were living in and dumped jet fuel into my mother's kitchen. And um, 
it was on fire. My sister Donna, unfortunately, was trapped there. Uh, my mother saved three people that day, though. I like to, you know, point that out. My mother's kind of my hero. She saved um, a, another another girl who was visiting um, Donna, and she saved her own mother, and she saved my sister Linda, who was only two years old and was enveloped in flames. I rolled her down the stairs and uh, got her out before the the building collapsed. Right, right after that. Um, so the, the way it relates to that is that Linda is the mother of Cheryl, who's featured in White Flag. And, you know, as I did uh, my research into transgenerational trauma, I realized that trauma doesn't go away, that it's it's with the family, um, really through the generations. And the awareness of it is is Im important to know. So so that's how that relates. That's the thread. That's how the books are connected. Right, yes. And and tell us a little bit more about White Flag. Why that title? Because it means a lot to a lot of people, and it certainly means something to us in recovery. Yeah. So why yeah. the title White Flag? Sure. Well, you know, as you pointed out, you know, White Flag is, you know, the universal sign of surrender. And for me, the title came about um, first as this is was the only way I could find a bed for my niece when she was homeless. And they had a white flag event that they call it when the weather is inclement and you, they open up their doors and all the shelters, even if they don't have a bed. And that's the way she found a bed in that last winter, really, of her life in Louisville, Kentucky, where I found that there are many more beds for men than there are for women, which is, I think, an important point, too. Um, the other part of white flag um, is that someone with substance use disorder needs to surrender themselves to the fact that they need help. And the white flag symbolizes that for me, that she had to raise her own white flag. And the third part of that is that I had to raise my own white flag of what I could and could not do for her. Yeah. So that's the way that came about. It's such a difficult thing for us to understand how much we can help and how much we can't help. That surrender and the whole idea of that in recovery is really an important concept. Was that an important concept for you, Dr. Pat? Yeah. And what I want to say, thank you so much for sharing this story, because it's a story that is that is rarely told. Uh, it is the untold story. It's what I call the invisible trauma. Multi-generational trauma is invisible trauma. Somehow we think that, oh, we're going to pop out a new kid. It's going to be a new generation. And we're all good. We're going to be all good. Uh, those of us that are from that experience, no, we're not all good. And, you know, the secrets of past generations is so deadly. But what you're doing is you're telling the story. You're sharing. You're allowing people that are sitting here listening to this show that are thinking, oh, my goodness, that sounds like my family. That sounds like me. We're not allowed to talk about it. We were not allowed to talk about my mom's suicide. And for a really long time, nobody told us what it was. But this is what this is the importance. It is the white flag, Ellen, you said so beautifully, and Judy, so beautifully. It is the white flag of surrender on the outside and on the inside, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And when you talk about, you know, not talking about things in a family, I like to say that, you know, silence is its own trauma in a family. 
you know, not talking about things. And I know I, I was certainly felt that in my family. They didn't talk about that accident. They didn't talk about what happened to one sister and that the other sister was so challenged. It was never talked about. And I know that visited to, to Cheryl, too, in her life, you know, with her, her mother's own struggles. What I have gleaned from this book is the fact that you were relentless in asking what was going on and trying to find the answers. And that's something that is really courageous and powerful because knowing what's going on, even though you may not be able to help, but knowing what's going on so that not only can you reconcile it in your own brain, but you can share it with the world is a very powerful thing. So going with you through every single aspect of what was happening to her, and not only that, but what was happening to you at the time, the questions that were running through your mind were universal questions, I can tell you, that everybody asks. All right. So so we really appreciate this kind of thing. But when you talk about white flag as well, you talk about the fact that in order to raise the white flag, one must acknowledge that they need help. And then you talk about the difficulty it is for people to ask for help. So why do you think that is, Judy? I think I think some of it is um, the language that we use, that it, it instills uh, stigma and, and shame in people that they don't want to come forward. So this this is one reason that I try I try to use the word substance use disorder instead of addiction um, and addict, which have so much shame attached to them. And I think that um, you know releasing some of that shame helps people come forward and realize that that they are deserving of help, that they need help, and you know opening things up to um, harm reduction you know, services also helps with that. Yeah. So I think it's the shame why people don't come forward. Yeah. I, I'm going to ditto that. And I love that because you notice we use the word recovery to be very broad. Um, yeah. And, you know, we are trying to overturn, oh my God, how many decades, like 1930s, you know, of this idea of I'm an addict. Um, you know, it, it's a stigma that's on top of a stigma that gets stigmatized inside your family and outside. I mean, it is a whole right. cycle and a dynamic as you just talked about. Um, yeah. And, you know, even the word addict, you know, I, I kind of go into this in the book a little bit. The word I know. comes from, you know, being a slave and, you know, in every sense of the word and just, just telling someone that, that makes them feel worthless. And I know my, my, my niece Cheryl felt that way. You know, I could see it in every letter that she sent me from when she was in jail. Every letter she sent me talked about how she was unworthy and undeserving. And, um, you know, I tried to bolster her against that feeling that she had. You know, you're on to something because if I, I did a little deep dive, you know, wow, like a number of years ago. Right, Ellen? Because yep. I, I found it interesting we use this language. And now with the digital world, we're not just using it. You know, it's almost, you know, it's almost like coming out as being gay, like that was fashionable. So this seems to be a little bit fashionable, but yet there's so much to learn about it. And here's what I discovered. You can't find the word addict or addiction very much in the literature. You can go back to Marty Mann and you can go back to even the way these organizations were named. They weren't named Addiction Anonymous, <laughs> right? Were they? 
No, no they no. were not. No. No. no, but somehow it became very fashionable to use this. Now, I, I want to clarify for everybody listening. I do not undermine the power of addiction. I don't. Nicotine, like right at the top of the list, everybody. But when you label yourself as a thing, then how do you undo that label? And I think that's part of what we're talking about because guilt and shame, um, Judy, I just want to get back to this if you don't mind. Yeah. Guilt and shame are the, they are the, they are the two peas in the pod of living a life of despair. They are right in there. They gnaw at you. It is like getting a thorn or a splinter in your finger that you just can't find and get rid of. And yet after time, you're so focused on it that it's hard to shake. Is that what you found, Judy? Yeah, I think that that is the crux of why people don't look for help or, or realize that they're worth the help. And, you know, I think this is also one reason why even at the needle exchanges that they find, you know, even going for that bit of help and seeing that people aren't judging them and are just there to help them helps people reach out for more help to to recover. And um, what's hopeful and what we see as hopeful now, especially in talking to young people and working with young people in recovery and having young people talk about how they are helping themselves, is to say that I am not my disease. I am in recovery and I am proud to be in recovery, which is saying to the world, just like Pat and I have said to the world many, many times, that we are not the product of something negative and harsh and harmful and that stigma, but we are the product of strength and hope and sharing that strength and hope across, you know, many multiple platforms, which is why we do this show. And, and I know that, that it was something hard for you too, because when Dr. Pat talks about um, shame and guilt, it's not only the shame and guilt that was brought upon by the person that is struggling to be in recovery, but it's the shame and guilt that you mentioned you went through as the person trying trying to help the sure. person in that struggle. And and not only did you do that because she was your niece, but because you, you made a promise to your sister. So tell us about that. Well, when my sister was um, dying, she died of lung cancer. Um, when she was dying, I, I said to her, and she had two daughters, and I said, don't worry, you can go. I'm going to take care of them. Um, you know, I've got them. And so... You know, that certainly I thought about that the whole time that um, Cheryl was in trouble um, at the last part of her life and wanted to do everything I could. It's it's that's kind of that's the kind of promise you you need to keep. And that's that's what motivated me a, a lot. It's yeah. true. Well, Cheryl's story was certainly a powerful one, and you tell it in a very compelling way. You talk about her Facebook posts, which are extremely powerful. People should see the kind of person she was talking to you about on the outside and then trying to get clues as to what was actually going on with her on the inside. And that, but, you know, that was my that was one of my purposes to to have those Facebook posts and her her actual letters that she wrote me. Yeah is to bring forward, you know, the person that she was. Yeah. And she, like you say, she was not her, her addiction, her substance use disorder. She, it's like looking at somebody with a disease like diabetes. And I, you know, my hope is that we change that perception. 
I'm so glad you said that, Judy, and I'm so glad you did it. Here's why. Um, I interview a lot of people, Ellen knows this, and I am like the last one to sit down and want to write a book, but I'm getting a lot of interest from publishers to write on my topic, Broken Promises. I studied it for 10 years. But part of that is the disclosure of my mom's letters to my dad when she was in Bellevue after her first suicide attempt. Now, how did I get the letters? My stepmom. The guilt and shame for my sister over that incident, who's 12 years older than me, had my stepmom, my stepmom had to wait till my dad died. My dad died. He had thrown them in the garbage. She pulled them out and she kept them until my dad died and wow. then gave them to me. And that led me on a journey to find out what happened to her because all we knew was she died in a fire we didn't know she started the fire but mm -hmm. the guilt and shame that my sister carried 12 years older than me watching a woman that couldn't take care of herself on drugs alcohol I wish I understood it better I wish I could help I could have helped my sister because it ultimately killed her and that's why I appreciate what you're doing, because I was not going to put the letters in my book until I read your book. That's a very powerful thing. Yeah. And and Judy has discovered it in so many different ways. I want to talk just a little bit about how the book opens up, because it's a really powerful beginning. You, you talk about writing to her, discovering her in prison, that must have been really overwhelming for you. Can you tell it us a was. little bit about that? It was, you know, it was, uh, it was actually my sister Linda's birthday. And I was thinking about her and her daughter, Cheryl, who I hadn't heard from in two years. I didn't know where she was. I was afraid that she had died. I thought she was certainly on the streets. Um, I didn't know anything. So I Googled her name and, um, and she popped up with a mugshot that she was in an Ohio prison. And I wrote to her there and, you know, wondered if I would hear back from her and it took a couple of weeks and I did hear back from her and that started our correspondence. But um, I don't think I was able to find her before that. I think there was something different in the way they listed people in prison. Um, but there she, there she was. And it was, it was two things at the same time. It was first a relief. Oh my God, she's alive. And, you know, maybe she's safe right this minute. She's safe. And the other was, oh, my God, she's in prison, you know. So there were it was a dual reaction that I had. Well, I commend you, first of all, for not running from that, because it's a very scary thing to turn around and say, oh, my God, my niece is in prison. I don't want to have anything to do with it. That is very common for many people to think that way. Mm -hmm. But to turn around and to continuously correspond with her, to help her, to give her some money in the commissary so that she can feel a little bit more self-respect and self-worth, and to continue that relationship with her gave her hope. And I think it gave you hope, too. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I did talk to some friends. I talked to a friend who's a social worker and she said, it's really important you put money in the commissary. I was, I was worried about that. Should I do that? I wasn't sure. And she said, yes, it's very important, you know, that they know somebody cares about them. And certainly that had a big effect on her. I sent her books and we could talk about them. She was a, a voracious reader 
And uh, we talked about the books and I, I talk about that in the book too, you know, which books I sent her and why I thought I would send her those books. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we had that. We had a relationship at, at, again, which I was grateful for. I was very grateful for that. Judy, I have a question for you because here's what I'm struck by and I don't know the answer to it. You know, when I look at the books and I read the books and get to know you here today, there is a question. I would love to know how this journey, first book, second book, how the journey changed you. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my first book was a journey of understanding who I was and that I, you know, it's called Replacement Child. And I was writing the book for at least a year before I came upon that that term replacement child they call a syndrome um, that was noted in like 1964. Um, and so, you know, I came upon that and I realized that so many of those features applied to me. <laughs> and I thought, well, how am I a replacement child? Why didn't that dawn on me that I was the replacement for my sister who, who died? It was only within another year that my mother had me. And, and certainly it, it made so much sense. So that, that was a journey in itself. Um, with White Flag, it was a journey to really understand substance use disorder, which I, I didn't I didn't understand. And understanding how it led back to my past and my niece's past and, and how that is all interrelated and how so many things um, make it a complex disease. Wow. So when, when you're, the one thing that impressed me is you kept asking Cheryl, you kept being extremely hopeful. You kept saying to her, you know, why don't you try this? And why don't you try that? And I'll help you find a place to live. I'll help you find treatment, all of these things. And she said, of course, what everybody <laughs> says to me who starts recovery coaching, meetings aren't for me. I've got a handle on this. I don't really need them. I just know I'll never go back to doing drugs again. So so as a person who is approaching this as a parent, as an aunt, as a concerned woman, did you really believe everything she was saying at the time or did did your gut instinct get the better of you? Here? Um, that part worried me a lot that she wouldn't try the things that were accessible to her at that time. Um, I think th things have changed a bit since that time. This was 2017. Yeah. Um, and there's, there are more things available, you know, medically assisted treatment and more social services, I think. I'm not sure about where she was in Kentucky, but um, the fact that she had these meetings available, especially in prison and in, you know, the halfway house that she was in for a while, and she wouldn't take advantage of those. And and part of it was the religious aspect that, that she bristled against. Um, and it, that did worry me quite a bit that she said she wouldn't do that. But I, I, I have to say, I, you know, I listened to her. She said, I'm never going back to that. That's not part of the problem. Um, I wish this is this is one thing I do wish that I had done is go there at that point and given her a drug test so she couldn't deny it because she was still using and, of course, lied to me about that. 
Dr. Pat, do you find that today, I mean, all of the stuff that we do in the past three years in the show, and, and you and I, of course, are avid 12-steppers, do you find that the 12-step modality in your own, in your personal work and everybody you talk to is evolving, or do you find that people are using other methods to oh, stay no. clean okay, and sober? So no, no. COVID was the greatest gift to addiction, you can imagine. It was the best and the worst gift to anybody in recovery, substance abuse, any kind of abuse, any anything you want to talk about. Now, why do I say that? Mm. Ellen knows this about me. I have been GSR. I have been representative of tri-state, multiple state parts of boards. I am a Marty Mann fan because she did not pay attention to the guidelines of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she went on television and she talked about it. She set up her own organization. So here's what COVID did. I know I'm excited, right? <laughs> I can't tell you how many conference meetings of those organizations I presented a package that said online meetings work. They are safe. Deaf ears right? Anonymous, anonymous. COVID comes. What did we do, Ellen? Online meetings. They Boom. work. <laughs> that was the greatest savior for people. People mm. came to meetings that never went to in-person meetings. If you didn't like the spiritual tone and you did not want to say to our father, like one of the meetings I went to in Jersey, you can go to the meetings here in Seattle spiritual, not religious. You could go to meetings. I went to meetings in Belgium. I went to meetings in Germany. I It let Pandora out. And that is a genie that cannot go back. So for me, when we're talking about this now, when we're talking about the time you were at, it was not available. No, you couldn't talk about it. We and Ellen and I, we decided we're just going to do a show. And it's not just her and I. <laughs> I have got Ellen. I've got Kelly Bazzani. I got Susan Denae. And they have come out of the box. And we're talking about this. But something about what happened in COVID energized us. I don't know, Ellen. I don't know how to explain it any better. No, I think you're absolutely right. And we're going to talk much more about all of this and much more about Judy's book. And also, we want to hear from Judy as to how she feels about how treatment is going and, and the observations that she's made uh, considering her her niece's you know situation. And, and uh, we want her to, to talk with other parents and other people who are really struggling mm -hmm. with the same thing. How do we get but, how do we find out more about Judy and her book? There How do we, we get go. a copy of her book? How do we Judy. find out, Judy? Um, you can go to judymandel.com um, or you can go to Amazon and look up Judy Mandel White Flag. Um, it's You can go into your local bookstore and ask for it. Um, White Flag is the and, name. Yeah, I'm going to answer this text. Marty Man, no, Marty Man, look it up. Marty Man is not a man. Marty Man is a woman. Google Marty Man. Uh, you can Google the television show, I've Got a Secret where they had to find the addict out of the three people and never thought it was her. The alcoholic out of the three people, she was on the television show from back in the day. You know, what's my secret? And the question was, which one of you three is an alcoholic? Let's uh, take a short break. When we're back, no more secrets. From the pushy broad from the Bronx, New York. 
You can't just fix yourself on the outside and expect the inside to follow. Whether you're 5 or 85, healthy living can begin whenever you decide you want a better life. Tune into Keeping Up with Barbara Scheidegger every month on TransformationTalkRadio.com to learn about implementing a daily routine and finding a balance to improve your life. Learn to live agelessly. Go to BarbaraScheidegger.com. That's Barbara, S-C-H-E-I-D-E-G-G-E-R.com. Are you looking for a way to break old habits that are holding you back from reaching your true potential and living the life you deserve? Well, look no further than Dr. Loretta Billups. She is a clinician and a relationship and mental health coach that will assist you with reaching your purpose. She will hold you accountable so that your desires are now a reality. Connect with Dr. B at cultivatingyourlife.com and find your path today. That's cultivatingyourlife.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Pat. I'm the host of The Dr. Pat Show, and I am the creator of The Transformation Network, doing what we do in the world of positive radio, informed, educated, positive media. Independent radio hosts and independent networks have been the face of positive messaging over the past decade. So all of us here have decided we're going to put together an independent network that is going to enable people to bring their positive message of hope, inspiration, and conscious action to the forefront. Help us create a future of amazing, uplifting stories that can be told so we can tell our children and they can tell their children of what hope and conscious action is all about. I want to thank you all for tuning us in, turning us on on TransformationTalkRadio.com. It is time to get inspired to take action in your life. Tune in to Emotional Elevation with me, Susan Denae. We are identifying, understanding, and treating our crazy one episode at a time. We all have crazy in our lives. The thing that sets us apart is how we deal with it. And I've got you covered. Enjoy your journey. You are worth it. Visit SusanDenae.com. That's D-E-N-E-E.com. What if you could enter a sacred vortex of love and beauty infused with the power of the earth and ascended masters? Join myself, Dr. Georgia Herrera and Dr. Sharon Martin in the the Sacred Magic Magic Show. Show. Bring in the mystical and sacred for healing, airing every third Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You too can have your health and life challenges melt away. Join now and feel your heart open up to the answers to your most important questions. From the push it brought from the Bronx, New York. Okay, I just got to say it before you say anything. <laughs> Every time I hear that, it brings me back to my childhood in the Bronx. And Benny, am I allowed to mention this? White Castle hamburgers. I'm oh, sorry. my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe you I'm said sorry. White Castle hamburgers I, on, I on Allerton Avenue this- in the Bronx. <laughs> Well, there was one. There was one in Elizabeth, New Jersey, too. That we yes, we, there was. Yes, I'm a Jersey girl. There I graduated still is. From Plainfield. There still is. <laughs> is it really? Every oh, time yeah. I say we that, we stop people... there all the time. <laughs> I remember that as the first fast food place. We even have home movies about us being at White Castle. It was such a big thing when they used to come out to us on roller skates and put Absolutely. the trays on the windowsills. Okay, so now that everybody knows we're both 100, we're oh, all 150 <laughs> years old. 
<laughs> we'll oh. continue onward. Oh my goodness. This is Ellen Stewart. I am the pushy broad from the Bronx. I'm here with Dr. Pat. I'm here with Judy Mandel. We're talking about her very, very interesting book called White Flag. I yeah. do need to tell you that as a recovery coach, especially this time of year, if you are struggling, if you need help, if you are like Judy and are a parent or a loved one concerned about what's happening to your loved one this time of year, I need you to call me at 800-889-1757. If you're in the United States, if you are abroad, go to pushybroadfromthebronx.com, making a free appointment with me to have an initial consultation. I will give you resources. I will help you, especially during this time of year. And now that everybody thinks there's no more COVID, everybody's out, everybody's partying, everybody's doing the kinds of things that, that get them into trouble this time of year. So just know that I'm here for you as a recovery coach, and I will certainly help you get through this difficult time. So, and you can find Judy's book, as she said, on Amazon on Amazon.com. Or go to her website. Judy Mandel. Judy Mandel. Uh, yes. Also, if you all want to call in, I thank you. I did get your text message. I'm going to give out the call-in number. 1-800-930-2819 is the call-in live to the show right now. 1-800-930-2819. If you are not listening to this show live and you have a question, you can still dial that number and our producers will pick it up and they will get the message to Judy or Ellen. 1-800-930-2819. Okay, sorry. Just want to say that's okay. All right. So Judy, first of all, I found it interesting that you take this book, White Flag, and you label it an investigative memoir. Okay. Rather than just a novel. Can you tell us why you call it that? Um, Because I think it's more investigative than it is memoir um, that I did so much research. And uh, actually the bibliography is probably, um, you know, a resource that is very helpful to people. Um, looking, look, trying to find the answers to those questions that we all have. You know, why did they become, you know, addicted to drugs? What, you know, why did they start using drugs? Why couldn't they stop when you know that they wanted to stop? These were all the questions that I had. And, you know, there aren't easy answers to any of those questions, as you know. It's very complex. And for each person, it's different. And um, I think the the investigative part was was the reading and research and talking to people that I did. And I, I felt like that was even more of the book than my piece. You know, I just saw something on Disney that I have to call your attention to because it goes to this message. There is a movie um, on the Disney Channel called Spirited. It is now with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. And what it what it is about is can someone be redeemed? Can they change? Is it possible for someone and 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 Will Ferrell is Scrooge? Is it possible for Scrooge to change? Can people change? Can they be redeemed? So based on your book. Judy, and based on what you've learned, do you think it's possible at any age to actually fix and change your life? I think so. I think so. I believe that. I believe people can change. Um, you know, uh, my son's a social worker, so we talk about this a lot. And he's, he says to me, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I couldn't be in this business if I didn't believe people ch- could change and that, you know, I could help them. And, and he sees and I see people change all the time. 
And I, be I believe it. Even with, you know, brain chemistry, with substance use, I believe that can be reversed with certain lifestyle changes as well. And be awareness, awareness of what what goes into this complexity, I believe is part of part of the answer. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, I absolutely believe at any age. Dr. Pat, this is the age old question. Is it a fix or a change? What do you think? I think it's a transformation. I think when you take this journey, it's a transformation. Whether you whether you succeed uh, in terms of language or pass fail, whether you think you've passed or failed, you are transformed. It doesn't matter because the experience, just the acknowledgement that your life is a mess and you want to do something about it, even if you don't get to what that end game is, it's transformation. It screams in the ninth step promises. I couldn't read the steps. I had to memorize the promises. I had to hold on to them because that was the only thing I could hold on to. If you told me that I would have this freedom, that I would not be baffled anymore, if you promised them to me, the fact that they called them promises, hello, right? But you will be transformed. Just like Judy, everything in the book is transformative. Your life is transformative. What you're doing to help people is transformative. What you're doing, Ellen, is the same thing. I have a network called the Transformation Network, Transformation Talk Radio. Why? Because I see my life as that. I never thought I'd be here today talking to you two. And honestly, in my high school book, they basically... When they called them, they found me for the high school reunion. They said to me one thing, is this really you? Are you Pat Vasily from Plainfield High School? I said, yes. They said, you're not dead. Yeah. Said, I'm not dead. No. <laughs> he said, we thought by now you'd be dead. We knew you were homeless, but we thought for sure you'd never get your act together. Wow. I did. Well, if <laughs> Judy's book, if Judy's book is any indication, Dr. Pat, you have to absolutely write your memoir. There's no I was going to say I want to read your book. <laughs> I there absolutely want to read your book. There you go. You know, so, it's always hardest to tell our own story, though, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. you know, you're doing a great job of it. And I'm and I'm very, very glad that Recovery Recharged over the past three years has given you an open platform to it do has. that. Yeah. Never We're, talked about it before. On I your know. 20 years, Judy. I the show know. is 20 years old. And wow. I, I couldn't talk about I didn't know how. Sure. So I am thrilled that I've been able to make it available to you to talk about it so we can talk about it together, because I know you've said things here that you've not said anywhere else. Oh, you, and you and Judy, I know that you felt that too in this book, and there were some surprising revelations that have come out of this story for you. So can you talk a little bit about some of the things you've learned that will help our audience? Sure. Um, well, like I was saying before, the complexity was of, of substance use disorder was certainly something I did not understand how, you know, even when you start, if you start young, the brain chemistry changes so, so much that it's, it's harder and harder to stop. You know, the, um, the metaphor that I liked that I found was uh, you're careening down a hill in a car, you're about to go off the cliff and you're putting your foot on the brake and you're pounding on the brake, but the brake doesn't work. And I, I keep feeling like that was Cheryl that she wanted to stop. She kept putting her foot on the brake, but she didn't have the capacity to do that. And I, the understanding of what that does to your brain um, was, was an essential part for me, you know, understanding. 
mm-hmm. you know, tied in with uh, she she had depression. That was part of it. Um, I found out there was uh, sexual abuse in her childhood, which I believe was also another piece of the puzzle that I I thought might have happened, but I found out it was absolutely true. Um, and and so that coupled with the generational trauma, you know, with um, her mom and our family, it was almost too much. It was too much. It was too much for me to tackle without even knowing what I was up against. Um, and I wish that that she had known more about it. I don't think she was aware of hardly any of this. Yeah. Were you from the old school where some so many people say that that because they didn't understand addiction, you felt that maybe she just wasn't strong enough to overcome it or or um, you didn't realize that all these factors were contributory to it? I mean, where were you absolutely, before? You absolutely. In the beginning, uh, that's true. And especially, you know, I only knew a fraction of what my sister went through with Cheryl and and her substance use. Um, disorder over the years. I didn't, I wasn't aware of all of the rehabs that she had been sent to until later when I was, um, you know, researching the book. I wasn't aware that uh, she had been in prison before, in jail at least. Um, There were so many factors that I just was not aware of. Um, I know my sister um, at one point said, I can't do anything anymore. And she kind of shut her out, which was, you know, the old, the old way of tough love. And, you know, now I I realize, and back then I thought, well, maybe you have to do that. Now I think that is totally the wrong way to approach this at all. That, you know, tough love, letting somebody hit bottom could be they're going to die. And I don't, I think keeping people alive is is much more important than that. Just keep them alive until they either wave their own white flag and look for help. Um, But as long, as you said before, as long as they're alive, there's hope. There's a very fine line, isn't there, Dr. Pat, between like what Judy said, this is this is a conversation in itself and we'll go into it a little bit more. But 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 the difference between tough love and enabling. Yeah, it's a very fine line. But here's what you know, it's going it was going to be an uphill battle anyway, because you're talking about a, a couple of states, whether it's Tennessee, West Virginia, or Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, right. Here's the news flash for everybody. Whenever you say which states in the United States like are up there, everybody wants to say New York. They're not even in the top 20. And, And so your point, Judy, about the situation, but where, where this was happening was in a place that you could not, not, be in front of drugs. And 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 the numbers are startling and they've gotten worse. I mean, you're talking about like Alabama, 98 retail opioid pain, pain relief prescriptions per 100 people. I mm. mean, 51.5 drug overdose deaths in West Virginia. I mean, you're talking about numbers that nobody wants to talk about. And the shocker is Vermont. So when you look at these and you look at my state, Washington state, and you think like we're the first to legalize marijuana, first, first, is this a weird, first to legalize domestic partnerships and marriage. Our governor did both in one year. We're not even on the list. So people that live in those places, they don't have the access that, that, that we're talking about here. And every street corner, 
every, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think, you know, the, the, I think important part is to make uh, treatment more accessible than the drugs. Absolutely. Right? And, and in so the it's, States it's I'm easier. mentioning, it's not. And in Kentucky, where Cheryl was, you know, when I when I started to to even try trying to find her a bed, you know, in a shelter, and I found and and I later I went to the shelter that she was at, the Salvation Army, and I saw, you know, all of these beds for men and this tiny little alcove for women, yeah. and you know, I said, what is this about? <laughs> and that was the case in the whole state. And I understand, but you know, there is also a class system in treatment too. And these are the things that we're going to break wide open when it comes to the new network at TTR, because if you have the money or if you have good insurance, you get a certain kind of treatment. And if you don't have the money and you don't have good insurance, you get another kind of treatment. And it's a very, very difficult situation to process. And mm-hmm. and more and more resources are now beginning to be developed to help people. Yeah. And even though your story was back in what, 2017, Judy, right. in 2017, it's only been five years, but it has vastly changed in this arena. And so many things are popping up in a really good way. But the thing that I think that, that families and parents and people like you have to understand is that there is such a thing as dual diagnosis. It may not always be the addict that is only worried about whether or not they want to pick up a drink or a drug. It comes from the things that you listed. It comes from epigenetics. It comes from the transgenerational trauma. It comes from the brain chemistry, uh, you know, originally. It comes from the fact that effective rehabilitation for, for her was very scarce. And you also talked about a failing prison system. And you also talked about big pharma flooding the the communities with opioids. So just touch on that for a second. What did you find out? Well, I did find out that, uh, you know, it was certainly a period of time when uh, we'll go back to fentanyl was was part of the picture in Kentucky. People were dying in droves in Kentucky at that that moment in time. Fentanyl was in every drug they were finding. And it was certainly in hers, you know, from the autopsy report. Um, so yeah, big pharma, you know, flooding. There's no way that those drugs didn't find their way to the street when we know that. Even, you know, I, I even know that, uh, you know, one of the people that I interviewed that was a friend of uh, Cheryl's said that her and her boyfriend were crushing up, uh, you know, oxy pills and, you know, snorting those as, as their drug. And so it was it was out there. It was, you know, definitely out there. Uh, epigenetics is a, is a fascinating topic that's a little bit, you know, hard to explain and, and understand, which I, you know, I try to do that. I actually have a, uh, my stepson is a, a neurobiologist and he's a, a, a professor and he explained it to me um, about how DNA can, um, it's not the DNA that gets passed down, it's the way that it reacts. And um he has a way of explaining it as balls of yarn and the balls of yarn are connected, you know, by um, one, one yarn and you can change the way the behaviors um, from those DNA balls of yarn react. It's so it's not something that can't be changed. Even epigenetics can be changed from, you know, by lifestyle changes Um, and transgenerational trauma. Also, I mean, just the awareness and being, you know, cognizant of where that behavior comes from is so important. You mentioned dual diagnosis and um, my niece was uh, diagnosed with depression, I think just in jail 
that was the first time and we were able to get her some medicine while she was in the Ohio jail. But when she went to Kentucky, they didn't have it. They didn't give it to her. And so she went, you know, right back down. And it was a struggle each time. Um, the prison system is something that really riles me because there was a time they wouldn't let me send her books for heaven's sakes. I wrote like a two page letter to the warden about how the books were a lifeline. It had no effect. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's troubling and, you know, systems need to be changed. But as you say, there is hope that things are changing. There's, there's more accessibility to medically assisted treatment, to counseling, but there is uh, you know, there's a difference in people who have insurance and people who have money and people who don't. Yeah. And I want to just comment happens. on this, Judy, for one thing, yeah, because yeah. this problem did not go away right now where we where we sit. Even in the 12-step programs, Ellen, you know, there is a stigma if you are working with someone and they say, I think I should go on antidepressants. There are many people still that look at that. I was turned away by a sponsor because uh, my psychologist put me on antidepressants after a major loss. And, you know, there are some people that hold a really hard line, almost punitive with this. And that has got to change. See, we are not doctors. People are underneath almost everyone I've ever worked with is exactly what you're talking about, Judy. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, our generational traumas, our personal traumas, our reasons that people are depressed, chemical imbalances, you name it. But boy, we have got to stop stigmatizing getting people help. Absolutely. And yeah. We, Absolutely. We got, yeah. And, and I say this to you all listening, do not do this without doing your own homework and research. You know, if your doctor prescribes a drug and you look it up and you say, Ooh, I don't think that's for me. Go back, ask questions. We're not doctors here in that capacity. So right. nothing we say here is medical, but I want to say to everybody listening, do your homework, do your research. She even and told you from, yeah, sorry. Um, Get help from trusted professionals, okay? That's why we'll be able to direct you to the right resources. The thing that has changed drastically, even in the 18 years that I am in working in treatment and I'm working in behavioral health, especially in the past two or three years, dual diagnosis has been an accepted form of treatment in most 12-step recovery rehabs, okay? You can no longer go into a rehab and not talk about the mental health issues that brought you here. I have never talked to any other addict or alcoholic without them telling me that their trauma or their mental health has not brought them here for one reason or another. It is ridiculous to think that those two are not linked. Those two are constantly linked. And until we understand that treatment has to include both of those things, it will constantly be an enigma for us to try to get the right help for people. Oh, I and totally I agree. know, and I know, Judy, what you've been through, and I know that we have about five minutes left, and I want you to be able to talk to us with a personal message. I want you to tell us what you hope readers will take away from this book and also from our time together today. Sure. Yeah, thank you for that. I think what I, I want people to look at this differently. I'm hoping that, you know, by reading this book, they have a different perspective and they look at if they have a loved one who has substance use disorder, I hope they look at them as if they have a disease like diabetes and that they can help them and, and show them that they're still loved 
and they're worth it. They're worth your time and they're worth saving. Do you think you would have done anything differently if you knew then what you know now? Yeah, I do. And exactly what would that have been so that our readers or our listeners may want to do the same thing? I think I would have stopped um, asking myself, when is she going to stop? Um, you know, why, why is she still doing this? I would have, I would have gone there when she was in the biggest trouble at the end of her life. Um, it was, you know, I was in Connecticut. She was in Kentucky. It was, you know, Christmas time. It was this time of year, exactly, as a matter of fact. And it was, um, so this was, I, I wish I had gone on a plane and gone there and seen for myself so that I, I didn't believe her when she told me she wasn't using and talked to her about what are we going to do? Do you want to go to rehab? Do you, do you want help to, you know, stop? Or can I help you at least live, you know, stay alive until we're ready for that? And that's that's what I wish I had done. Dr. Pat, what do you think about that? I'm right there with her, you know, because I think about what I could have done differently with my sister, you know, especially once I, I got a sense. You know, my sister and my stepmom died uh, two years apart in 1992, one year apart in 1991, 92. I'm in two years of sobriety. And I'm, and, you know, I also have that list, Judy, because I now know more. It's not that I regret, I didn't know any better. I didn't know what I didn't know. Let me just put it like that. But now I think back, and this is the hope for the future, Judy, isn't it? Let's see what yeah. we now know. It's not about changing the past. We can't, but it is about structuring, sculpting the future, which has more possibilities for people. Isn't that part of your message, Judy? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and keeping, keeping people alive, meeting them where they are is I think the important piece. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And how important now, today, is the serenity prayer to you, Judy? Well, you know, it's um, my sister had had a, uh, a medallion with the serenity prayer on it, as long as I can remember. And it was given to her because of all the struggles she was going through physically and emotionally because of her, her burns um, and her surgeries. Um, I, it took me a long time to even know that that was the prayer that was the Alcoholics Anonymous prayer. I had no idea really until, you know, many years later, but I always, I always, you know, kind of leaned on that as well. And, and still it's, it's a very meaningful prayer. Judy, tell us where to find your book again and your website. Sure. It's uh, judymandel.com. So J-U-D-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L.com. And my book is White Flag. You can find it anywhere books are sold. If you need help, especially during this difficult time of the year, pushybroadfromthebronx.com, my 800 number, 800-889-1757. Dr. Pat, take us out. Um, I want to thank everybody today. But Judy, I want to ask you this question. What is your personal message for those listening, not just through the holidays, but to their hearts? What do you want to leave us with today? Let this person know in your life that you love them. That's my personal message. This is Ellen Stewart, the Pushy Broad from the Bronx, saying thanks for listening. And remember, everybody needs a little push. From the Pushy Broad from the Bronx, New York.